1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Science has done much to improve the humble seed, making for hardier and more nutritious crops in much of the world. It's a different story in parts of Africa, though, where there's a dearth of seed knowledge, seed availability, and seed capital. And the Colombian drug kingpin Pablo Escobar was a bit of an animal lover. He surrounded himself with exotic beasts in his own private zoo. After his death, many were simply released. And now Colombia is developing a problem with hippos. But first... In the past few days, protests in Hong Kong have revealed shocking levels of violence, both on the parts of pro-democracy demonstrators and the police. What started months ago as peaceful weekend demonstrations on Hong Kong Island have spread into the working week and throughout the territory. Where once there were just chants and marches, now there are Molotov cocktails, water cannon, and tear gas. The core five demands of the demonstrators have been the same since large-scale protests began in June. Only one of them has been met, the withdrawal of a bill that would have allowed extradition of alleged criminals to mainland China. But opposition to the extradition bill was emblematic of a desire by many Hong Kongers for greater independence from the mainland, for more democracy. The police force, which in the early days of the unrest seemed remarkably calm, now appears willing to match the escalating violence of the protesters.
2: So there's been an escalation over the past few days in Hong Kong.
1: Caroline Carter is our deputy Asian news editor and is based in Hong Kong.
2: On Friday afternoon, it was announced that um, a student, a local student, who had fallen off a building, potentially while running away from the police, had died. He'd been in intensive care for a week. So on Friday night, there were lots of um, protests, morning. So there was um, a tense weekend. Um, And then on Sunday night, there was a call for a general strike on Monday, which in Hong Kong means don't go to work and also try to stop other people going to work. So lots of roads closed, lots of trains shut, um, people throwing petrol bombs at trains. And then very early on Monday morning, a policeman shot a protester at close range um, with a live bullet. Um, And then in the afternoon, the other most dramatic um, sort of event was a man who argued with protesters, was beaten up and then set on fire by the protesters. And then yesterday, there was a huge battle it's being described as, and it really did look like that, up, up at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Between students and police, the police were trying to get onto the campus, and the students didn't want them to. And they, the police apparently fired hundreds and hundreds of rounds of tear gas. And um, the protesters set lots of fires alight. Um, and it really looked like a, a war zone late into the night last night.
1: We we last talked to you about these protests in June, and, the, and they have, have continued largely unabated. I mean, would you have expected it to last this long or to get to this point?
2: Uh, no. So back in June, i don't think many people expected that the protests would still be going on by the middle of November, and especially with no real end in sight. The protests have changed forms many times. We've gone from large peaceful weekend marches to strikes and an increasing ramping up of the violence by the protesters, attacks on businesses and shops, and then a much stronger response from the police
1: and and what's it been like for you as as sort of an observer of all of this and and what it would be like for for someone in Hong Kong who who wasn't directly involved in the protests
2: I think for people in Hong Kong almost everyone now has had some direct involvement in the protests whether you've wandered past one or the train that you were supposed to be on has been cancelled This week has been much more disruptive than usual because uh, many of the trains have been cancelled. Lots of people struggle to get into work. The schools are shut. The universities are closed. And then there's the people whose jobs are being threatened. There's um, lots of shops and restaurants have struggled because tourists have stopped coming. So really, I think by this point, everyone has been impacted in some way.
1: And how are the people of Hong Kong reacting to how the situation is escalating?
2: Increasingly, Many people in Hong Kong are getting fed up with the disruption and they hate the violence and they are worried about the direction that the protests are going in. Um, There's also people on the streets who think that the police and the government could be tougher on the protesters um, and that Carrie Lam has not taken a harsh, harsh enough line. But I'd say that many people within the movement who supported the young protesters from the beginning are so furious with the government and the police that that can overshadow their criticisms of what the protesters are doing. Um, and so people within the pro-democracy movement acknowledge that if it hadn't been for the protesters back in June, preventing the passing of the extradition bill, which is what sparked these protests, that the extradition bill would now be in place. So they, even with this escalating violence, they're, they're quite determined not to criticize the violence that's happening.
1: And so what have the authorities, what has Kerry Lem said about this, these recent escalations?
2: Um, So most recently, um, Carrie Lam held a press conference on Monday night and she called the rioters enemies of the people. If there is still any wishful thinking that by escalating
3: violence, the Hong Kong SEL government will yield to pressure to satisfy the so-called political demands. I'm making this statement clear and loud here. That will not
2: happen. Other than that, she hasn't suggested any solutions, um, but she says that everyone's focus now must be on stopping this violence. And then on Tuesday, she held a press conference and she confirmed that she has no plans to cancel the district council elections, which are due to be held next Sunday. Um, There's quite a lot of speculation that the government will try to cancel them, blaming the violence. Yesterday, she said that the vote would go ahead.
1: And and the central question from from the very start was just how patient Beijing would be about this and and whether or not uh, the the garrison of troops in in Hong Kong would be released onto the streets and and things could get very much uglier still. Do you think the the escalation this week makes that more likely?
2: I don't think the escalation this week necessarily makes it more likely that Beijing will intervene. For now, Beijing seems happy to let Hong Kong deal with the protests. Carrie Lam's been in China, she's met Xi Jinping and other officials who have all said that they support her and her government and the police. And in fact, the harder line from the police that we're seeing on the streets this weekend um, probably reassures the government in Beijing and in fact lessens the chance of direct interference.
1: So you, you say that you wouldn't, when we spoke to you back in June, have expected things to go on this long. So it's, it's, a, it's a hard one to predict. Based on where things are now, how do you think this might resolve itself?
2: At the moment, it's very difficult to see how this situation will be resolved. Carrie Lam doesn't appear to want to negotiate with the protesters or offer any concessions. And protesters on the streets are very determined not to back down. The young protesters on the streets have no plans to back down. The number of people coming out onto the streets has dropped since the police have been policing the protests in different ways. But the public are very angry still. um, And I'm sure they'll find new ways to express that anger if it's not through marching. So these past few days have shown that a tiny minority of people in Hong Kong are capable of being very violent, much more so than we would have expected in June. So I think it's possible that we might see fewer protests, but more dangerous ones.
1: Caroline, thank you very much for joining us.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question.
1: Most economies that depend on agriculture have access to good seeds. The science of seeds has advanced enormously in recent decades, with hybridized or genetically modified cultivars that grow more food with less effort, or that are more resistant to floods or droughts. From these tiny seeds, economies have grown around the world, with the notable exception of Africa.
4: I've been to Rwanda a couple of times to interview farmers about how they're getting on. And it's been noticeable several times I have seen a field of healthily growing maize plants right next to a field of kind of rather bedraggled maize, maize plants. Joel
1: Budd is our social policy editor.
4: And often the reason for the difference is that they're using different sorts of seeds.
1: What do you mean by that, different sorts of seeds?
4: Many, many small African farmers use seeds that they held back from the current year's crop. So they're sort of like open pollinated seeds and they've been kind of working well for years. They're probably reasonably well adapted to local growing conditions, but they're never going to produce a very large crop. And others will be using hybrid seeds, which they have to purchase from an agricultural supplier. But if they've got hold of a good hybrid seed and they give it a little fertilizer, they're likely to be growing much, much more that year, which is going to be the difference between deep poverty and much less deep poverty.
1: And so these hybrid seeds are are sort of a cutting-edge agricultural technology we're talking about here?
4: No, it's incredibly old technology. So American crop scientists discovered the benefits of hybridizing maize, and what we call maize and what Americans call corn, about 100 years ago, and by the 1930s or 1940s, American maize yields were shooting up in the 1950s and especially 1960s. And the problem is that Africa largely missed out on the Green Revolution, which was an explosion of productivity in Asia in the 1950s and 60s, which really lifted Asia out of deep poverty
1: why is that? Why hasn't it taken off as it did in Asia?
4: It's partly because Africa is a very complex continent. So there's one staple cereal for much of Asia, which is rice. And a lot of Asia is irrigated. And so if you come up with an amazing new seed in the Philippines, then you can probably grow that same seed in India. And, you know, local people will have a huge demand for it. But in Africa, You have uh, almost no irrigation. You have very, very different climates. And you also have very, very different preferences for cereals. So maize is the big one, but there are African countries where wheat is more important or cassava is more important or rice is more important.
1: Is it just that the farmers in these poorer countries simply can't afford the snazzy newer seed?
4: Partly it is, and they lack credit, they lack insurance, etc. But a bigger problem is that it simply isn't available or that the not very good seeds are available. So the kind of improved hybrid seeds that they can plant are simply not very good.
1: Why isn't the very best, the very latest hybridized seed available to all of these markets?
4: So the reasons are complicated, partly is because farmers are kind of conservative. And if you're a very poor farmer, then you're probably very conservative. But a bigger reason is that in many African countries, there is a market for improved hybrid. Seeds, but it's dominated by state owned companies. And the price of their products is controlled by politicians. They're often forced to hold down their prices. They're also instructed by politicians to create particular types of seeds because these were the seeds that worked 20 years ago and the politicians have heard of them. Also, because of the way subsidies work in a kind of complicated way, private competitors are frequently shoved out of the market. So there just aren't very many companies making seeds in African countries. So there's rather little variety. And the seeds that farmers plant are old. And the problem with that is because innovation is, is always continuing, if you're planting a seed that was developed 20 or 30 years ago, it's simply going to be less good than a seed that was developed three or four years ago.
1: But if it's a matter of, of crop yields and you know keeping a country fed and happy, why would governments sort of interfere with that? Why wouldn't they want the very best that they could get their hands on?
4: Well, some of them do, but it's very difficult for them to sort of relinquish control over a market. We've seen that in many other areas of business. So yes, they're frequently well-intentioned and they'll try to get hybrid seeds to farmers by subsidizing them or even sometimes just by distributing them. Sometimes the army comes in and will kind of fan out across the country giving seeds to people. But they often fail to look at the real problem, which is that they have policies in place that really slow down innovation, that push private competitors out of the market. And so what's available to farmers is just kind of crummy.
1: Would just the best seeds on the market solve some of the problems that these regions have?
4: No, it wouldn't solve the problem. I mean, there's never one reason that a person is poor and struggling. There's always a thousand reasons. That's the nature of poverty. So, you know, for example, African countries need better fertilizer markets, they need more irrigation, they need better roads so they can move fertilizer in and then crops out. They need proper grain markets, they need non-crazy import-export policies, they need less corruption, they need all these things. But having really good seeds is an enormous help. And you can compare countries, for example, Mali has a much better, much more vibrant seed market than Chad does. And, you know, agricultural productivity in Mali is just quite a lot higher. These are two seriously poor countries, or at least they have seriously poor bits. And just having a proper seed market with more choice and better product seems to have helped Mali develop quite a bit more than Chad.
1: So taking those two particular examples, how to make more countries like Mali, how to get better seed markets across the continent...
4: One simple way of making things quite a lot better is to just make the approval process faster. So at the moment, once a kind of intriguing new seed line has kind of come off a research plot, it takes about five years to get that seed into the ground in a sort of ordinary farmer's field. And that is pretty slow, especially... When you're dealing with very fast-moving diseases and, you know, the spread of diseases, the spread of pests seems to be increasing, if that can be brought down to kind of two years or three years, then that would enormously help farmers. And really, that just means much, much less intrusive and sort of repetitive testing of seeds by government civil servants. If seed companies could certify their own seeds, which they do in some of the more advanced African countries, then that just speeds everything up hugely. In some cases, though, what you really need is genetically modified crops, especially if you're trying to deal with some of the pests that are spreading very, very, very quickly in Africa, you know, And it seems like if you rely on hybridization to develop resistant plants, it's going to take forever. It's much, much quicker to introduce resistance through genetic modification. And almost all African countries are incredibly opposed to GM. And so they make research very difficult and they won't allow these things to come to market. And I, I just think they're going to have to rethink.
1: Thank you very much for coming in, Joel. Thank you. Among the lesser-known facts about Pablo Escobar, the notorious Colombian drug lord, is that he loved animals. At the height of his power in the 1980s, he bought half a dozen hippos for his personal zoo. They joined the rhinos, giraffes, and zebras at Hacienda Napolis, his mansion east of the capital, Medellín.
3: Pablo Escobar, he got killed in 1993, and after that, the anti-narcotics department took over his estate. And they were supposed to figure out what to do with the animals. And they successfully moved the camels and the zebras.
1: Mariana Palau reports on Latin America for The Economist and is based in Colombia.
3: But when it came to the big, heavy and dangerous animals, they sort of let them go. So the rhinos and the hippos, they were let free. And there's a difference between those two animals. Whereas rhinos need very specific conditions to reproduce and to live... Hippos adapt really easily and reproduce really quickly. And that has resulted in a wild population of hippos living in the Magdalena River, just 18 kilometers east of Pablo Escobar's mansion. Scientists believe there is at least 50 hippos right now, but there could be as many as 70 and the biggest problem in Colombia is that they have no predators because, unlike Africa, there are no big cats or hyenas that will eat young hippos. In 20 years' time, there could be as many as 200 hippos.
1: And so what, what's wrong with that? Why, why shouldn't there be a wild population of hippos there?
3: Well, the issue is that it's having a huge impact in ecosystems in the Magdalena River. And keep in mind that hippos are very, very territorial, so they can't live in the same space with other species. It's been a particular problem with manatees. Manatees are an endangered species in Colombia, and the hippos are just pushing them away from their natural habitat. Hippos also, their dung is a problem because bacteria that eat away the dung, the hippo dung, they consume a lot of oxygen and therefore take it away from the water. And that's dooming the fish. So it's having a huge impact on local ecosystems.
1: So so what can be done? What, what can be done to, to, to curb the hippo problem?
3: So the easiest Way to solve this problem is to kill them all, to shoot them, but they can't do it. The authorities are prohibited from doing that because, in two thousand nine, Pepe, one of Pablo Escobar's original hippos, he was running around and stomping on crops, and people were afraid that he was going to end up being a huge danger for them. So they shot him. But then animal rights activists sued the government, and a court ruling now prohibits hunting hippos in Colombia so that's out of the question they could be shipped to zoos but you know all zoos in Colombia have hippos already sending them back to africa is a problem because these hippos are inbred right they descend from about four or six hippos And no one knows how this unique genetic composition can affect the African herd or other African ecosystems. They might also carry some fatal diseases for the African fauna. So there's no way of shipping them back to Africa. It really is a problem that has no solution right now.
1: Well, why not simply sterilize them?
3: Well, that's too expensive, actually. And hippos reproduce so quickly that by the time that authorities are able to catch one and sterilize one, about four or five are born. So it's not a really cost-effective or quick way to check their population growth.
1: So so that's it then? It, it, it's, a, it's only a matter of time before all of Colombia is nothing but nose-to-tail hippos?
3: Well, the environmental authorities in the region have one last hope and that is birth control. There are some scientists within some universities that are trying to develop a birth control specific for hippos, but that's taking a really long time, and authorities are saying they're running against the clock. So if by the end of the year these researchers don't come up with a hippo contraceptive. What they do intend to do is use birth control that has already worked on pigs. They'll probably increase the dosage and try to control the population through that.
1: Mariana, thank you very much for your time.
3: You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.